Today's read, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Color Blindness by Michelle Alexander. Chapter 2, The Lockdown. We may think we know how the criminal justice system works. Television is overloaded with fictional dramas about police, crime, and prosecutors, shows such as Law and Order. These fictional dramas, like the evening news, tend to focus on individual stories of crime, victimization, and punishment, and the stories are typically told from the point of view of law enforcement. A charismatic police officer, investigator, or prosecutor struggles with his own demons while heroically trying to solve a horrible crime. He ultimately achieves a personal and moral victory by finding the bad guy and throwing him in jail. That is the made-for-TV version of the criminal justice system. It perpetuates the myth that the primary function of the system is to keep our streets safe and our homes secure by rooting out dangerous criminals and punishing them. These television shows, especially those that romanticize drug law enforcement, are the modern-day equivalent of the old movies portraying happy slaves. The fictional gloss placed on a brutal system of racialized oppression and control. Those who have been swept within the criminal justice system know that the way the system actually works bears little resemblance to what happens on television or in movies. Full blown trials of guilt or innocence rarely occur. Many people never even meet with an attorney. Witnesses are routinely paid and coerced by the government. Police regularly stop and search people for no reason whatsoever. Penalties for many crimes are so severe that innocent people plead guilty, accepting plea bargains to avoid harsh, mandatory sentences. And children, even as young as 14, are sent to adult prisons. Rules of law and procedure such as guilt beyond a reasonable doubt or probable cause or reasonable suspicion can easily be found in court cases and law school textbooks, but are much harder to find in real life. In this chapter, we shall see how the system of mass incarceration actually works. Our focus is the war on drugs. The reason is simple. Convictions for drug offenses are the single most important cause of the explosion in incarceration rates in the United States. Drug offenses alone account for two-thirds of the rise in the federal inmate population and more than half of the rise in state prisoners between 1985 and 2000. Approximately a half million people are in prison or jail for a drug offense today, 
compared to an estimated 41,100 in 1980, an increase of 1,100%. Drug arrests have tripled since 1980. As a result, more than 31 million people have been arrested for drug offenses since the drug war began. To put the matter in perspective, consider this. There are more people in prisons and jails today just for drug offenses than were incarcerated for all reasons in 1980. Nothing has contributed more to the systematic mass incarceration of people of color in the United States than the war on drugs. Before we begin our tour of the drug war, it is worthwhile to get a couple of myths out of the way. The first is that the war is aimed at ridding the nation of drug kingpins or big-time dealers. Nothing could be further from the truth. The vast majority of those arrested are not charged with serious offenses. In 2005, for example, four out of five drug arrests were for possession, and only one out of five was for sales. Moreover, most people in state prison for drug offenses have no history of violence or significant selling activity. The second myth is that the drug war is principally concerned with dangerous drugs. Quite to the contrary, arrests for marijuana possession, a drug less harmful than tobacco or alcohol, accounted for nearly 80% of the growth in drug arrests in the 1990s, despite the fact that most drug arrests are for non-violent minor offenses. The war on drugs has ushered in an era of unprecedented punitiveness. The percentage of drug arrests that result in prison sentences rather than dismissal, community service, or probation has quadrupled, resulting in a prison building boom, the likes of which the world has never seen. In two short decades between 1980 and 2000, the number of people incarcerated in our nation's prisons and jails soared from roughly 300,000 to more than 2 million. By the end of 2007, more than 7 million Americans, or one in every 31 adults, were behind bars, on probation, or on parole. We begin our exploration of the drug war at the point of entry, arrest by the police, and then consider how the system of mass incarceration is structured to reward mass drug arrests and facilitate the conviction and imprisonment of an unprecedented number of Americans, whether guilty or innocent. In subsequent chapters, we will consider how the system specifically targets people of color and then relegates them to a second-class status, analogous, analogous to Jim Crow. At this point, we simply take stock of the means by which the war on drugs facilitates the roundup and lockdown of an extraordinary percentage of the U.S. population. Rules of the game. 
few legal rules meaningfully constrain the police in the war on drugs. This may sound like an overstatement, but upon examination it proves accurate. The absence of significant constraints on the exercise of police discretion is a key feature of the drug war's design. It has made the roundup of millions of Americans for nonviolent drug offenses relatively easy. With only a few exceptions, the Supreme Court has seized every opportunity to facilitate the drug war, primarily by eviscerating Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures by the police. The rollback has been so pronounced that some commentators charge that a virtual drug exception now exists to the Bill of Rights. Shortly before his death, Justice Thurgood Marshall felt compelled to remind his colleagues that there is, in fact, no drug exception written into the text of the Constitution. Most Americans do not know what the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution actually says or what it requires of the police. It states in its entirety, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized. Courts and scholars agree that the Fourth Amendment governs all searches and seizures by the police and that the amendment was adopted in response to the English practice of conducting arbitrary searches under general warrants to uncover seditious libels. The routine police harassment, arbitrary searches, and widespread police intimidation of those subject to English rules helped to inspire the American Revolution. Not surprisingly then, preventing arbitrary searches and seizures by the police was deemed by the Founding Fathers an essential element of the U.S. Constitution until the War on Drugs. Courts had been fairly stringent about enforcing the Fourth Amendment's requirements. Within a few years after the drug war was declared, however, many legal scholars noted a sharp turn in the Supreme Court's Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. By the close of the Supreme Court's 1990-91 term, it had become clear that a major shift in the relationship between the citizens of this country and the police was underway. Justice Stevens noted the trend in a powerful dissent issued in California versus Acevedo, a case upholding the warrantless search of a bag locked in a motorist's trunk. In the years from 1982 to 1981, the court has heard argument in 30 Fourth Amendment cases involving narcotics. In all but one, the government was the petitioner. All save two 
involved a search or seizure without a warrant or with a defective warrant. And in all except three, the court upheld the constitutionality of the search or seizure. In the meantime, the flow of narcotics cases through the courts has steadily and dramatically increased. No impartial observer could criticize this court for hindering the progress of the war on drugs. On the contrary, decisions like the one the court made today will support the conclusion that this court has become a loyal foot soldier in the executive fight against crime. The Fourth Amendment is but one example. Virtually all constitutionality protected, constitutionally protected civil liberties have been undermined by the war on drugs. The court has been busy in recent years approving mandatory drug testing of employees and students, upholding random searches and sweeps of public schools and students, permitting police to obtain search warrants based on an anonymous informant's tip, expanding the government's wiretapping authority, legitimizing the use of paid unidentified informants by police and prosecutors, approving the use of helicopter surveillance of homes without a warrant, and allowing the forfeiture of cash, homes, and other property based on unproven allegations of illegal drug activity. For our purposes here, we limit our focus to the legal rules crafted by the Supreme Court that grant law enforcement a pecuniary interest in the drug war and make it relatively easy for the police to seize people virtually anywhere, on public streets and sidewalks, on buses, airplanes and trains, on any other or any other public place, and usher them behind bars. These new legal rules have ensured that anyone, virtually anywhere, for any reason, can become a target of drug law enforcement activity. The whole time I'm reading this, the whole time I'm reading this, I'm thinking of the officers who murdered Brianna Taylor under just... mm, Unreasonable suspicion. Once upon a time, it was generally understood that the police could not stop and search someone without a warrant unless there was probable cause to believe that the individual was engaged in criminal activity. That was a basic Fourth Amendment principle. In Terry v. Ohio, decided in 1968, the Supreme Court modified that understanding but only modestly, by ruling that if and when a police officer observes unusual conduct by someone the official reasonably believes to be dangerous and engaged in criminal activity, the officer is entitled for the protection of himself and others in the area to conduct a limited search to discover weapons that might be used against the officer. 
Known as the stop and frisk rule, the Terry decision stands for the proposition that so long as a police officer has reasonable articulable suspicion that someone is engaged in criminal activity and dangerous, it is constitutionally permissible to stop, question, and frisk him or her even in the absence of probable cause. Justice Douglas dissented in Terry on the grounds that granting police greater power than a magistrate judge is to take a long step down the totalitarian path. He objected to the notion that police should be free to conduct warrantless searches whenever they suspect someone is a criminal, believing that dispensing with the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement frisked opening the door to the same abuses that gave rise to the American Revolution. His voice was a lonely one. Most commentators at the time agreed that affording police the power and discretion to protect themselves during an encounter with someone they believed to be a dangerous criminal is not unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment. History suggests Justice Douglas had the better of the argument. In the years since Terry, stops, interrogations, and searches of ordinary people driving down the street, walking home from the bus stop, or riding the train have become commonplace, at least for people of color. As Douglas suspected, the court in Terry had begun its slide down a very slippery slope Today, it is no longer necessary for the police to have any reason to believe that people are engaged in criminal activity or actually dangerous to stop and search them. As long as you give consent, the police can stop, interrogate, and search you for any reason or no reason at all. Just say no. The first major sign that the Supreme Court would not allow the Fourth Amendment to interfere with the persecution or prosecution of the war on drugs came in Florida versus Bostick. In that case, Terrence Bostick, a 28-year-old African-American, had been sleeping in the back seat of a Greyhound bus on his way from Miami to Atlanta. Two police officers wearing bright green raid jackets and displaying their badges and a gun woke him with a start. The bus was stopped for a brief layover in Fort Lauderdale and the officers were working the bus looking for persons who might be carrying drugs. Bostick provided them with his identification and ticket as requested. The officers then asked to search his bag. Bostic complied, even though he knew his bag contained a pound of cocaine. The officers had no basis for suspecting Bostic of any criminal activity, but they got lucky. They arrested Bostic, and he was charged and convicted of trafficking cocaine. Bostic's search and seizure reflected that, reflected what had become an increasingly common tactic in the war on drugs. Suspicionless police sweeps of buses in interstate or intrastate travel. The resulting interviews of passengers in these dragnet operations usually culminate in a request for consent to search the passenger's luggage. Never do the officers inform passengers 
that they are free to remain silent or to refuse to answer questions. By proceeding systematically in this manner, the police are able to engage in an extremely high volume of searches. One officer was able to search over 3,000 bags in a nine-month period employing these techniques. By and large, however, the hit rates are low. For example, in one case, a sweep of 100 buses resulted in only seven arrests. On appeal, the Florida Supreme Court ruled in Bostick's case that the police officer's conduct violated the Fourth Amendment's prohibition of unreasonable searches and seizures. The Fourth Amendment, the court reasoned, forbids the police from seizing people and searching them without some individualized suspicion that they have committed or are committing a crime. The court thus overturned Bostick's conviction, ruling that the cocaine having been obtained illegally was inadmissible. It also also broadly condemned bus sweeps in the drug war, comparing them to methods employed by totalitarian regimes. The evidence in this case has evoked images of other days under other flags, when no man traveled his nation's roads or railways without fear of unwarranted interruption by individuals who had temporary power in government. This is not Hitler's Berlin, nor Stalin's Moscow, nor is it white supremacist South Africa, yet in Broward County, Florida. These police officers approach every person on board buses and trains that time permits and check identification, tickets, ask to search luggage, all in the name of voluntary cooperation with law enforcement. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed. The court ruled that Bostick's encounter with the police was purely voluntary and therefore he was not seized within, within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. Even if Bostick did not feel free to leave when confronted by police at the back of the bus, the proper question, according to the court, was whether a reasonable person in Bostick's shoes would have felt free to terminate the encounter. A reasonable person, the court concluded, would have felt free to sit there and refuse to answer the police officer's questions and would have felt free to tell the officer, no, you can't search my bag. Accordingly, Bostick was not really seized within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment and the subsequent search was purely consensual. The court made clear that its, that its decision was to govern all future drug sweeps, no matter what the circumstances of the targeted individual. Given the blanket nature of the ruling, courts have found police encounters to be consensual in truly preposterous situations. For example, a few years after Bostick, the District of Columbia Court of Appeals applied the ruling to a case involving a 14-year-old girl interrogated by the police, concluding that she must be held to the same reasonable person standard. Prior to the Bostic decision, a number of lower courts had found absurd the notion that reasonable people would feel empowered to refuse to answer questions when confronted by the police. 
As federal judge Prentice Marshall explained, the average person encountered will feel obliged to stop and respond. Few will feel that they can walk away or refuse to answer. Professor Tracy Macklin put it this way, common sense teaches that most of us do not have the chutzpah or stupidity to tell a police officer to get lost after he has stopped us and asked us for identification or questioned us about possible criminal conduct. Other courts emphasize that granting police the freedom to stop, interrogate, and search anyone who consented would likely lead to racial and ethnic discrimination. Young black men would be the likely targets rather than older white women. Justice Thurgood Marshall acknowledged as much in his dissent in Bostic, noting the basis of the decision to single out particular passengers during a suspicionless sweep is less likely to be inarticulable than unspeakable. Studies have shown that Macklin's common sense is correct. The overwhelmingly, the overwhelming majority of people who are confronted by police and asked questions respond, and when asked to be searched, they comply. This is the case even among those like Bostic who have every reason to resist these tactics because they actually have something to hide. This is no secret to the Supreme Court. The court long ago acknowledged that effective use of consent searches by the police depends on the ignorance and powerlessness of those who are targeted. In Schneckloth versus Bustamante, decided in 1973, the court admitted that if waiver of one's right to refuse consent were truly knowing, intelligent, and voluntary, it would in practice create serious doubt whether consent searches would continue to be conducted. In other words, consent searches are valuable tools for the police only because hardly anyone dares to say no. Poor excuse. So-called consent searches have made it possible for the police to stop and search just about anybody walking down the street for drugs. All a police officer has to do in order to conduct a baseless drug investigation is ask to speak with someone and then get their consent to be searched. So long as orders are phrased as a question, compliance is interpreted as consent. May I speak to you? Thunders an officer. Will you put your arms up and stand against the wall for a search? Because almost no one refuses drug sweeps on the sidewalk and on buses and trains are easy. People are easily intimidated when the police confront them, hands on their revolvers, and most have no idea the question can be answered, no. But what about all the people driving down the street? How do police extract consent from them? The answer, pretext stops. Like consent searches, Pretext stops are favorite tools of law enforcement in the war on drugs. A classic pretext stop is a traffic stop, motivated not by any desire to enforce traffic laws, but instead 
motivated by a desire to hunt for drugs in the absence of any evidence of illegal drug activity. In other words, police officers use minor traffic violations as an excuse, a pretext to search for drugs, even though there is not a shred of evidence suggesting the motorist is violating drug laws. Pretext stops, like consent searches, have received the Supreme Court's unequivocal blessing. Just ask Michael Wren and James Brown. Wren and Brown, both of whom are African American, were stopped by plainclothes officers in an unmarked vehicle in June 1993. The police admitted to stopping Wren and Brown because they wanted to investigate them for imagined drug crimes even though they did not have probable cause or reasonable suspicion. Such crimes had actually been committed. Lacking actual evidence of criminal activity, the officers decided to stop them based on a pretext, a traffic violation. The officers testified that the driver failed to use his turn signal and accelerated abruptly from a stop sign. Although the officers weren't really interested in the traffic violation, they stopped the pair anyway because they had a hunch. They might be drug criminals. It turned out they were right. According to the officers, the driver had a bag of cocaine in his lap, allegedly in plain view. On appeal, Wren and Brown challenged their convictions on the ground that pretextual stops violate the Fourth Amendment. They argued that because of the multitude of applicable traffic and equipment regulations and the difficulty of obeying all traffic rules perfectly at all times, the police will nearly always have an excuse to stop someone and go fishing for drugs. Anyone driving more than a few blocks is likely to commit a traffic violation of some kind, such as failing to track properly between lanes, failing to stop at precisely the correct distance between I'm sorry, behind a crosswalk, failing to pause for precisely the right amount of time at a stop sign, or failing to use a turn signal at the appropriate distance from an intersection. Allowing the police to use minor traffic violations as a pretext for baseless drug investigations would permit them to single out anyone for a drug investigation without any evidence of illegal drug activity whatsoever. That kind of arbitrary police conduct is precisely what the Fourth Amendment was intended to prohibit. The Supreme Court rejected their argument, ruling that an officer's motivations are irrelevant when evaluating the reasonableness of police activity under the Fourth Amendment. It does not matter, the court declared, why the police are stopping motorists under the Fourth Amendment, so long as some kind of traffic violation gives them an excuse. The fact that the Fourth Amendment was specifically adopted by the Founding Fathers to prevent arbitrary stops and searches was deemed unpersuasive. The court ruled that the police are free to use minor traffic violations as a pretext to conduct drug investigations even when there is no evidence of illegal drug activity. A few months later, in Ohio versus Robinette, the court took its twisted logic one step further 
In that case, a police officer pulled over Robert Robinette, allegedly for speeding. After checking Robinette's license and issuing a warning, but no ticket, the officer then ordered Robinette out of his vehicle, turned on a video camera in the officer's car, and then asked Robinette whether he was carrying any drugs and would consent to a search. He did. The officer found a small amount of marijuana in Robinette's car and a single pill, which turned out to be methamphetamine. The the Ohio Supreme Court reviewing the case on appeal was obviously uncomfortable with the blatant fishing expedition for drugs. The court noted that traffic stops were increasingly being used in the war on drugs to extract consent for searches and that motorists may not believe they are free to refuse consent and simply drive away. Hmm. I have to pause. Is what's today's day? Today, September twenty third, twenty twenty, and um, yeah, this book was written in twenty ten or published in twenty ten, and even then, uh, black man, black woman, driving away from the police, that's you asking to be murdered, and that's just facts. But that's just it's just facts. But now back to her actual documented facts. Oh, this book is a lot. Um, The Ohio Supreme Court reviewing the case on appeal was obviously uncomfortable with the blatant fishing expedition for drugs. The court noted the traffic stops were increasingly being used in the war on drugs to extract consent for searches and that motorists may not believe they are free to refuse consent and simply drive away in an effort to provide some minimal protection for motorists, the Ohio court adopted a bright line rule that is an unambiguous requirement that officers tell motorists they are free to leave before asking for consent to search their vehicles. At the very least, the justices reasoned, motorists should know they have the right to refuse consent and to leave if they so choose. Mm-mm. America. Mm. The U.S. Supreme Court struck down this basic requirement, this basic requirement, as unrealistic. In so doing, the court made clear to all lower courts that from now on, the Fourth Amendment should place no meaningful constraints on the police in the war on drugs. No one needs to be informed of their rights during a stop or search, and police may use minor traffic stops as well as the myth of consent to stop and search anyone they choose for imaginary drug crimes, whether or not any evidence of illegal drug activity actually exists. One might imagine that the legal rules described thus far would provide more than enough latitude for the police to engage in an all-out, no-holds-bar war on drugs but there's more even if motorists after being detained and interrogated have the nerve to refuse consent to a search the police can arrest them anyway in Atwater versus City of Lago Vista the Supreme Court held that the police may arrest motorists 
for minor traffic violations and throw them in jail even if the statutory penalty for the traffic violation is a mere fine, not jail time. Another legal option for officers frustrated by motorists' refusal, there we go, to grant consent is to bring a drug-sniffing dog to the scene. This option is available to police in traffic stops, as well as to law enforcement officials confronted with resistant travelers in airports and in bus or train stations who refuse to give the police consent to search their luggage. The Supreme Court has ruled that walking a drug-sniffing dog around someone's vehicle for someone's luggage or someone's luggage does not constitute a search and therefore does not trigger Fourth Amendment scrutiny. If the dog alerts to drugs, then the officer has probable cause to search without the person's consent. Naturally, in most cases, when someone is told that a drug-sniffing dog will be called, the seized individual backs down and consents to the search, as it has become apparent that the police are determined to conduct the search one way or another. It's just, and I'm sure the book will get into it because she's giving us the background and, and, and how the law is supposed to be applied um, as far as the war on drugs. The, race, the racialized component, though, that me living and growing up in America that I know and see and very aware of and am very aware of it's just so one-sided because being 2020 and um, I believe 2019, there's a um, an announced epidemic of opioids because opioids are generally white people that are not being convicted, that are not being thrown in jail, that are not being having entire families and lives ruined although they are using drugs and transporting drugs and selling drugs on schools and campuses and homes and all of that stuff they're not getting treated the same way that the crack war on drugs was carried out or anything else that has to do with criminal justice is carried out it's all carried out along racial lines and um Yeah, I'm sure the book will get into that. Kissing frogs. Court cases involving drug law enforcement almost always involve guilty people. Police usually release the innocent on the street, often without a ticket, citation, or even an apology. So their stories are rarely heard in court. Hardly anyone files a complaint because the last thing most people want to do after experiencing a frightening and intrusive encounter with the police is show up at the police station where the officer works and attract more attention to themselves. For good reason, many people, especially poor people of color, fear police harassment, retaliation, and abuse. After having your car torn apart by the police in a futile search for drugs or being forced to lie spread-eagled on the pavement while the police search you and interrogate you for no reason at all, 
How much confidence do you have in law enforcement? Do you expect to get a fair hearing? Those who try to find an attorney to represent them in a lawsuit often learn that unless they have broken bones and no criminal record, private attorneys are unlikely to be interested in their case. Many people are shocked to discover that what happened to them on the side of the road was not, in fact, against the law. The inevitable result is that the people who wind up in front of a judge are usually guilty of some crime. The parade of guilty people through America's courtrooms gives the false impression to the public, as well as to judges, that when the police have a hunch, it makes sense to let them act on it. Judges tend to imagine the police have a sixth sense or some kind of special police training that qualifies them to identify drug criminals in the absence of any evidence. After all, they seem to be right so much of the time, don't they? The truth, however, is that most people stopped and searched in the war on drugs. Stopped and searched in the war on drugs are perfectly innocent of any crime. The police have received no training that enhances the likelihood they will spot the drug criminals as they drive by and leave everyone else alone. To the contrary, tens of thousands of law enforcement officers have received training that guarantees precisely the opposite. The Drug Enforcement Agency, DEA, trains police to conduct utterly unreasonable and discriminatory stops and searches throughout the United States. Perhaps the best known of these training programs is Operation Pipeline. The DEA launched Operation Pipeline in 1984 as part of the Reagan administration's rollout of the war on drugs. The federal program, administered by over 300 state and local law enforcement agencies, trains state and local law enforcement officers to use pretextual traffic stops and consent searches on a large scale for drug interdiction. Officers learn, among other things, how to use a minor traffic violation as a pretext to stop someone, how to lengthen a routine traffic stop and leverage it into a search for drugs, how to obtain consent from a reluctant motorist, and how to use drug-sniffing dogs to obtain probable cause. By 2000, the DEA had directly trained more than 25,000 officers in 48 states in pipeline tactics and helped to develop training programs for countless municipal and state law enforcement agencies. In legal scholar Ricardo Basquas's words, Operation Pipeline is exactly what the what the framers meant to prohibit. I'm sorry. Operation Pipeline is exactly what the framers meant to prohibit. A federally run general search program that targets people without cause for suspicion, particularly those who belong to disfavored groups. The program's success requires police to stop staggering numbers of people in shotgun fashion. This volume approach to drug enforcement sweeps up extraordinary numbers of innocent people. As one California Highway Patrol officer said, it's sheer numbers. 
you've got to kiss a lot of frogs before you find a prince. Accordingly, every year, tens of thousands of motorists find themselves stopped on the side of the road, fielding questions about imaginary drug activity, and then succumbing to a request for their vehicle to be searched, sometimes torn apart in the search for drugs. Most of these stops and searches are futile. It has been estimated by that 95% of pipeline stops yield no illegal drugs. One study found that up to 99% of traffic stops made by federally funded narcotics task forces result in no citation and that 98% of task force, task force searches during traffic stops are discretionary searches in which the officer searches the car with the driver's verbal consent but has no other legal authority to do so. The drug courier profiles utilized by the DEA and other law enforcement agencies for drug sweeps on highways as well as in airports and train stations are notoriously unreliable. In theory, a drug courier profile reflects the collective wisdom of wisdom and judgment of law enforcement agency officials instead of allowing each officer to rely on his or her own limited experience and biases in detecting suspicious behavior. A drug courier profile affords every officer the advantage of the agency's collective experience and expertise. However, as legal scholar David Cole has observed, in practice, the drug courier profile is a scattershot hodgepodge of traits and characteristics so expansive that it potentially justifies stopping anybody and everybody. The profile can include traveling with luggage, traveling without luggage, driving an expensive car, driving a car that needs repairs, driving with out-of-state license plates, driving a rental car, driving with mismatched occupants, acting too calm, acting too nervous, dressing casually, wearing expensive clothing or jewelry, being one of the first to deplane, being one of the last to deplane, deplaning in the middle, paying for a ticket in cash, using large denomination currency, using small denomination currency, traveling alone, traveling with a companion, and so on. Even striving to obey the law fits the profile. The Florida Highway Patrol drug courier profile cautioned troopers to be suspicious of scrupulous obedience to traffic laws. As Cole points out, such profiles do not so much focus on investigation, focus and investigation, as provide law enforcement officials a ready-made excuse for stopping whomever they please. The Supreme Court has allowed use of drug courier profiles as guides for the exercise of police discretion, although it has indicated that the mere fact that someone fits a profile does not automatically constitute reasonable suspicion. Justifying a stop, courts routinely defer to these profiles and the courier profile decisions. Many courts have accepted the profile as well as the drug enforcement agency's scattershot enforcement efforts unquestioningly, mechanistically, and disp- dispositively. Dispositively. It pays to play. Clearly, 
the rules of the game are designed to allow for the roundup of an unprecedented number of Americans from minor, nonviolent drug offenses. The number of annual drug arrests more than tripled between 1980 and 2005. As drug sweeps and suspicionless stops and searches proceeded in record numbers, still, it is fair to wonder why the police would choose to arrest such an astonishing percentage of the American public for minor drug crimes. The fact that the police are legally allowed to engage in a wholesale roundup of nonviolent drug offenders does not answer the question, why? Why would they choose to do so? Particularly when most police departments have far more serious crimes to prevent and solve. Why would police prioritize drug law enforcement? Drug use and abuse is nothing new. In fact, it was on the decline, not on the rise, when the war on drugs began. So why make drug law enforcement a priority now? Once again, the answer lies in the system's design. Every system of control depends for its survival on the tangible and intangible benefits that are provided to those who are responsible for the system's maintenance and administration. This system is no exception. At the time the drug war was declared, illegal drug use and abuse was not a pressing concern in most communities. The announcement of a war on drugs was therefore met with some confusion and resistance within law enforcement as well as among some conservative commentators. The federalization of drug crime violated the conservative tenant of states' rights and local control, as street crime was typically the responsibility of local law enforcement. Many state and local law enforcement officials were less than pleased with the attempt by the federal government to assert itself in local crime fighting, viewing the new drug war as an unwelcome distraction. Participation in the drug war required a diversion of resources away from more serious crimes, such as murder, rape, grand theft, and violent assault, all of which were of far greater concern to most communities than illegal drug use. The resistance within law enforcement to the drug war created something of a dilemma for the Reagan administration. In order for the war to actually work, that is, in order for it to succeed in achieving its political goals, it was necessary to build a consensus among state and local law enforcement agencies that the drug war should be a top priority in their hometowns. The solution? Cash. Huge cash grants were made to those law enforcement agencies that were willing to make drug law enforcement a top priority. The new system of control is traceable to a significant degree to a massive bribe offered to state and local law enforcement by the federal government. In 1988, at the behest of the Reagan administration, Congress revised the program that provides federal aid to law enforcement, renaming it the Edward Byrne Memorial State and Local Law Enforcement Assistance Program, after a New York City police officer who was shot to death while guarding the home of a drug case witness. 
the BURN program was designed to encourage every federal grant recipient to help fight the war on drugs. Millions of dollars in federal aid have been offered to state and local law enforcement agencies willing to wage the war. This federal grant money has resulted in the proliferation of narcotics task forces, including those responsible for highway drug interdiction. Nationally, narcotics task forces make up about 40% of all burn grant funding, but in some states, as much as 90% of all burn grant funds go toward specialized narcotics task forces. In fact, it is questionable whether any specialized drug enforcement activity would exist in some states without the burn program. Other forms of valuable aid have been offered as well. The DEA has offered free training, intelligence, and technical support to state highway patrol agencies that are willing to commit their officers to highway drug interdiction. The Pentagon, for its part, has given away military intelligence and millions of dollars in firepower to state and local agencies willing to make the rhetorical war a literal one. Almost immediately after the federal dollars began to flow, law enforcement agencies across the country began to compete for funding, equipment, and training. By the late 1990s, the overwhelming majority of state and local police forces in the country had availed themselves of the newly available resources and added a significant military component to buttress their war operations. According to the Cato Institute, in 1997 alone, the Pentagon handed over more than 1.2 million pieces of military equipment to local police departments. Similarly, the National Journal reported that between January 1997 and October 1999, the agency handled 3.4 million orders of Pentagon equipment from over 11,000 domestic police agencies in all 50 states, including in the bounty were, included in the bounty were 253 aircraft, including six and seven passenger airplanes, UH-60 Black Hawk and UH-1 Huey helicopters, 7,856 M-16 rifles, 181 grenade launchers, 8,131 bulletproof helmets, and 1,161 pairs of night vision goggles. A retired police chief in New Haven, Connecticut, told the New York Times, I was offered tanks, bazookas, anything I wanted waging war. In barely a decade, the war on drugs went from being a political <clears throat> a political slogan to an actual war. Now that police departments were suddenly flush with cash and military equipment earmarked for the drug war, they needed to make use of their new resources. As described As described in a Cato Institute report, paramilitary units, most commonly called special weapons and tactics or SWAT teams, were quickly formed in virtually every major city to fight the drug war.
SWAT teams originated in the 1960s and gradually became more common in the 1970s. But until the drug war, they were rarely used, primarily for... They were used rarely, primarily for extraordinary emergency situations such as hostage takings, hijackings, or prison escapes. That changed in the 1980s when local law enforcement agencies suddenly had access to cash and military equipment specifically for the purpose of conducting raids. Today, the most common use of SWAT teams is to serve narcotics warrants, usually with forced, unannounced entry into the home. In fact, in some jurisdictions, drug warrants are served only by SWAT teams, regardless of the nature of the alleged drug crime. As the Miami Herald reported in 2002, police say they want SWAT teams in case of a hostage situation or a Columbine type incident, but in practice, the teams are usually mainly to serve search warrants on suspected drug dealers. Some of these searches yield as little as a few grams of cocaine or marijuana. The rate of increase in the use of SWAT teams has been astonishing. In 1972, there were just a few hundred paramilitary drug raids per year in the United States. By the early 1980s, there were 3,000 annual SWAT deployments. By 1996, there were 30,000 And by 2001, there were 40,000. The escalation of military force was quite dramatic in cities throughout the United States. In the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota, for example, its SWAT team was deployed on no-knock warrants 35 times in 1986. But in 1996, that same team was deployed for drug raids more than 700 times. Drug raids conducted by SWAT teams are not polite encounters. In countless situations in which police could easily have arrested someone or conducted a search without a military-style raid, police blast into people's homes, typically in the middle of the night, throwing grenades, shouting and pointing guns and rifles at anyone inside, often including young children. In recent years, Dozens of people have been killed by police in the course of these raids, including elderly grandparents and those who are completely innocent of any crime. Criminologist Peter Kroska reports that between 1989 and 2001, at least 780 cases of flawed paramilitary raids reached the appellate level a dramatic increase over the 1980s when such cases were rare or earlier when they were non-existent. Many of these cases involved people killed in botched raids. Alberta Spruill, a 57-year-old city worker from Harlem, is among the fallen. On May 16, 2003, a dozen New York City police officers stormed her apartment on a no-knock warrant, acting on a tip from a confidential informant who told them a convicted felon was selling drugs on the sixth floor. (sighs) The, The informant 
had actually been in jail at the time he said he'd bought drugs in the apartment. And the target of the raid had been arrested four days before. Oh my gosh. But the officers didn't check and didn't even interview the building superintendent. The only resident in the building was Alberta. Described by friends as a devout churchgoer, before entering, police deployed a flashbang grenade, resulting in a blinding, deafening explosion. Alberta went into cardiac arrest and died two hours later. The death was ruled a homicide, but no one was indicted. Those who survive SWAT raids are generally traumatized by the event. Not long after Spru- not long after Spruill's death, Manhattan Borough President C. Virginia Fields held hearings on SWAT practices in New York City. According to the Village Voice, dozens of Black and Latino victims, nurses, secretaries, and former officers packed her chambers, airing tales, one more terrifying and horrifying than the next. Most were unable to hold back tears as they described police ransacking their homes, handcuffing children and grandparents, putting guns to their heads, and being verbally and often physically abusive. In many cases, victims had received no follow-up from the NYPD, even to fix busted doors or other physical damage. Even in small towns, such as those in Dodge Country, Wisconsin, SWAT teams treat routine searches for narcotics as major battlefront in the drug war. In Dodge, Con- in Dodge County, police raided the mobile home of Scott Bryant in April 1995 after finding traces of marijuana in his garbage. Moments after bursting into the mobile home, Police shot Bryant, who was unarmed, killing him. Bryant's eight-year-old son was asleep in the next room and watched his father die while waiting for an ambulance. The district attorney theorized that the shooter's hand had clenched in a sympathetic physical reaction as his other hand reached for handcuffs. A spokesman for the Beretta Company called this unlikely because the gun's double-action trigger was designed to prevent unintentional firing. The Dodge County Sheriff compared the shooting to a hunting accident. SWAT raids have not been limited to homes, apartment buildings, or public housing projects. Public high schools have been invaded by SWAT teams in search of drugs. In November 2003, for example, police raided Stratford High School in Goose Creek, South Carolina. The raid was recorded by the school surveillance cameras as well as police camera. The tapes show students, as young as 14, forced to the ground in handcuffs as officers in SWAT team uniforms and bulletproof vests aim guns at their heads and lead a drug-sniffing dog to tear through their book bags. The raid was initiated by the school's principal, who was suspicious that a single student might be dealing marijuana. No drugs or weapons were found during the raid and no charges were filed. Nearly all of the students searched and seized were students of color. The transformation from community policing 
to military policing began in 1981 when President Reagan persuaded Congress to pass the Military Cooperation with Law Enforcement Act, which encouraged the military to give local, state, and federal police access to military bases, intelligence, research, weaponry, and other equipment for drug interdiction. That legislation carved a huge exception to the Posse Comitatus Act, Comitatus Act, the Civil War era law prohibiting the use of the military for civilian policing. It was followed by Reagan's National Security Decision Directive, which declared drugs a threat to U.S. national security and provided for yet more cooperation between local, state, and federal law enforcement. In the years that followed, Presidents George Bush and Bill Clinton enthusiastically embraced the drug war and increased the transfer of military equipment, technology, and training to local law enforcement, contingent, of course, on the willingness of agencies to prioritize drug law enforcement and concentrate resources on arrests for illegal drugs. The incentives program worked. Drug arrests skyrocketed as SWAT teams swept through urban housing projects, highway patrol patrol agencies, organized drug interdiction units on the freeways, and stop and frisk programs were set loose on the streets. Generally, the financial incentives offered to local law enforcement to pump up their drug arrests have not been well publicized, leading the average person to conclude reasonably, but mistakenly, that when their local police department report that drug arrests have doubled or tripled in a short period of time, the arrests reflect a surge in illegal drug activity rather than an infusion of money and an intensified enforcement effort. One exception is a 2001 report by the Capital Times in Madison, Wisconsin. The Times reported that as of 2001, 65 of the state's 83 local SWAT teams had come into being since 1980 and that the explosion of SWAT teams was traceable to the Pentagon's weaponry giveaway program, as well as to federal programs that provide money to local police departments for drug control. The paper explained that in the 1990s, Wisconsin police departments were given nearly a 100,000 pieces of military equipment. And although the paramilitary units were often justified to city councils and skeptical citizens as essential to fight terrorism or deal with hostage situations, they were rarely deployed for those reasons, but instead were sent to serve routine search warrants for drugs and make drug arrests. In fact, the Times reported that the police departments had an extraordinary incentive to use their new equipment for drug enforcement. The extra federal funding the local police department received was tied to anti-drug policing. The size of the disbursements was linked to the number of city or county drug arrests. Each arrest, in theory, would net a given city or county about $153. Wait, each arrest, in theory, would net a given city or county about $153 in state and federal funding. Non-drug-related policing brought no federal dollars. 
$153 million in state and federal funding. Non-drug-related policing brought no federal dollars even for violent crime. As a result, when Jackson County, Wisconsin quadrupled its drug arrests between 1999 and 2000, the county's federal subsidy quadrupled too. Finders keepers. As if the free military equipment, training, and cash grants were not enough, the Reagan administration provided law enforcement with yet another financial incentive to devote extraordinary resources to drug law enforcement. Rather than more serious crimes, state and local enforcement agencies were granted the authority to keep for their own use the vast majority of cash and assets they seized when waging the drug war. This dramatic change in policy gave state and local police an enormous stake in the war on drugs, not in its success, but in its perpetual existence. I have to restate that. Okay. As if the free military equipment training and cash grants were not enough, the Reagan administration provided law enforcement with yet another financial incentive to devote extraordinary resources to drug law enforcement. Rather than more serious crimes, state and local enforcement agencies were granted the authority to keep for their own use the vast majority of cash and assets they seize when waging the drug war. This dramatic change in policy gave state and local police an enormous stake in the war on drugs, not in its success, but in its perpetual existence. Mm. Law enforcement gained a pecuniary interest not only in the forfeited property, but in the profitability of the drug market itself. Modern drug forfeiture laws date back to 1970 when Congress passed the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act. The act included a civil forfeiture provision authorizing the government to seize and forfeit drugs, drug manufacturing and storage equipment, and conveyances used to transport drugs. As legal scholars Eric Blumenson and Eva Nielsen have explained, the provision was justified as an effort to forestall the spread of drugs in a way criminal penalties could not, by striking at its economic roots. When a drug dealer is sent to jail, there are many others ready and willing to take his place, but seizing the means of production, some legislatures reasoned, may shut down the trafficking business for good. Over the years, the list of properties subject to forfeiture expanded greatly, and the required connection to illegal drug activity became increasingly remote, leading to many instances of abuse. But it was not until 1984 when Congress attended the federal law, amended the federal law to allow federal law enforcement agencies to retain and use any and all proceeds from asset forfeitures and to allow state and local police agencies to retain up to 80% of the assets value that a true revolution occurred. Suddenly, police departments were capable of increasing the size of their budgets quite substantially simply by taking the cash, cars, and homes of people suspected of drug use or sales 
at the time the new rules were adopted, the law governing civil forfeiture was so heavily weighed in favor of the government that fully 80% of forfeitures were uncontested. Property or cash could be seized based on mere suspicion of illegal drug activity and the seizure could occur without notice or hearing upon an ex parte showing of mere probable cause to believe that the property had somehow been involved in a crime. The probable cause showing could be based on nothing more than hearsay, innuendo, or even the paid self-serving testimony of someone with interests clearly adverse to the property owner. Neither the owner of the property nor anyone else need be charged with a crime, much less found guilty of one. Indeed, a person could be found innocent of any criminal conduct and the property could still be subject to forfeiture. Once the property was seized, the owner had no right of counsel and the burden was placed on him to prove the property's innocence. Because those who were targeted were typically poor or of moderate means, they often lacked the resources to hire an attorney or pay the considerable court costs. As a result, most people who had their cash or property seized did not challenge the government's actions, especially because the government could retaliate by filing criminal charges, baseless or not. Not surprisingly, this drug forfeiture regime proved highly lucrative for law enforcement, offering more than enough incentive to wage the war on drugs. According to a report commissioned by the Department of Justice between 1988 and 1992 alone, Byrne-funded drug task forces seized over $1 billion in assets. Remarkably, this figure does not include drug task forces funded by the DEA by the DEA or other federal agencies. The actual operation of drug forfeiture laws seriously undermines the usual rhetoric offered in support of the war on drugs, namely that it is the big kingpins that are the target of the war. Drug war forfeiture laws laws are frequently used to allow those with assets to buy their freedom while drug users and small-time dealers with few assets to trade are subjected to lengthy prison terms unless you're a white person using opioids, but yeah. In Massachusetts, for example, an investigation, opioids and heroin, but yeah. In Massachusetts, for example, an investigation by journalists found that an that on average, a payment of $50,000 in drug profits won a $6.3 year reduction in a sentence for dealers, while agreements of $10,000 or more brought elimination or reduction of trafficking charges in almost three-fourths of such cases. Federal drug forfeitures Federal drug forfeiture laws are one reason Blumenson and Nielsen wrote, why state and federal prisons now confine large numbers of men and women who had relatively minor roles in drug distribution networks, but few of their bosses. The shakedown. Quite predictably, the enormous economic rewards created by both the drug war forfeiture and burn grant laws was created, has created an environment in which a very fine line exists 
between the lawful and the unlawful taking of other people's money and property. A line so thin that some officers disregard the formalities of such warrants, probable cause, and reasonable suspicion altogether. In United States versus Reese, for example, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals described a drug task force completely corrupted by its dependence on federal drug money. Operating as a separate unit within the Oakland Housing Authority, the task force behaved, in the words of one officer, more or less like a wolf pack, driving up in police vehicles and taking anything and everything we saw on the street corner. The officers were under tremendous pressure from their commander to keep their arrest numbers up, and all of the officers were aware that their jobs depended on the renewal of a federal grant. The task force commander emphasized that they would need statistics to show that the grant money was well spent and sent the task force out to begin a shift with comments like, let's go out and kick ass, and everybody goes to jail tonight for everything, right? Journalists and investigators have documented numerous other instances in which police departments have engaged in illegal shakedowns, searches, and threats in search of a forfeitable property and cash. In Florida, reporters reviewed nearly 1,000 videotapes of highway traffic stops and found that police had used traffic violations as an excuse or pretext to confiscate tens of thousands of dollars from motorists against whom there was no evidence of wrongdoing, frequently taking the money without filing any criminal charges. Similarly, in Louisiana, journalists report that Louisiana police engaged in massive pretextual stops in an effort to seize cash with the money diverted to police department ski trips and other unauthorized uses. And in Southern California, a Los Angeles Sheriff's Department employee reported that deputies reported that deputies routinely planted drugs and falsified police reports to establish probable cause for cash seizures. Lots of small seizures can be nearly as profitable and require the expenditure of fewer investigative resources than a few large busts. The Western Area Narcotics Task Force, WANT, became the focus of a major investigation in 1996 when almost $66,000 was discovered hidden in its headquarters. The investigation revealed that the task force seized large amounts of money, but also small amounts, and then dispensed it freely, unconstrained by reporting requirements or the task force's mission. Some seizures were as small as eight cents. Another seizure of 93 cents prompted the local newspaper to observe that once again, the officers were taking whatever the suspects were carrying, even though by no stretch could pocket change be construed to be drug money. In 2000, Congress passed the Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act, which was meant to address many of the egregious examples of abuse of civil forfeiture. Some of the most widely cited examples involved wealthy whites whose property was seized. One highly publicized case involved a reclusive millionaire, Donald Scott, who was shot and killed when when a multi-agency task force raided his 200-acre Malibu ranch, 
purportedly in search of marijuana plants. They never found a single marijuana plant in the course of their search. A subsequent investigation revealed that the primary motivation for the raid was the possibility of forfeiting Scott's property. If the forfeiture had been successful, it would have netted the law enforcement agencies about $5 million in assets. In another case, William Munnerlyn had his Learjet seized by the DEA after he had inadvertently used it to transport a drug dealer. Though charges were dropped against him within 72 hours, the DEA refused to return his Learjet. Only after five years of litigation and tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees was he able to secure a return of his jet. When the jet was returned, it had sustained $100,000 worth of damage. Such cases were atypical, but got the attention of Congress. The Reform Act resulted in a number of significant due process changes, such as shifting the burden of proof onto the government, eliminating the requirement that an owner post a cost bond and providing some minimal hardship protection for innocent parties who stand to lose their homes. These reforms, however, do not go nearly far enough. Arguably, the most significant reform is the creation of an innocent owner defense. Prior to the Reform Act, the Supreme Court had ruled that the guilt or innocence of the property's owner was irrelevant to the property's guilt. A ruling based on the archaic legal fiction that a piece of property could be guilty of a crime. The act remedied this insanity to some extent. It provided an innocent owner defense to those whose property had been seized. However, the defense is seriously undermined by the fact that the government's burden of proof is so low, the government need only establish by a preponderance of evidence that the property was involved in the commission of a drug crime. This standard of proof is significantly lower than the clear and convincing evidence or standard contained in an earlier version of the legislation, and it is far lower than the proof beyond a reasonable doubt standard for criminal convictions. Once the government meets this minimal burden, the burden then shifts to the owner to prove that she did not know of the conduct giving rise to the forfeiture, or that she did all that reasonably could be expected under the circumstances to terminate such use of the property. This means, for example, that a woman who knew that her husband that a woman who knew that her husband occasionally smoked pot could have her car forfeited to the government because she allowed him to use her car because the car was guilty of transporting someone who had broken a drug law at some time. She could legally lose her only form of transportation, even though she herself committed no crime. Indeed, women who are involved in some relationship with men accused of drug crimes, typically husbands or boyfriends, are among the most frequent claimants in forfeiture proceedings. Courts have not been forgiving of women in these circumstances frequently concluding that the nature and circumstances of the marital relationship may give rise to an inference of knowledge by the spouse claiming innocent ownership. There are other problems with this framework, not the least of which 
being that the owner of the property is not entitled to the appointment of counsel in the forfeiture proceeding unless he or she has been charged with a crime. The overwhelming majority of forfeiture cases do not involve any criminal charges. So the vast majority of people who have, who have their cash, cars, or homes seized must represent themselves in court against the federal government. Oddly, someone who has actually been charged with a crime is entitled to the appointment of counsel in civil forfeiture proceedings, but those whose property has been forfeited but those whose property has been forfeited, but whose conduct did not merit criminal charges, are on their own. This helps explain why 90% of forfeiture cases in some jurisdictions are not challenged. Most people simply cannot afford the considerable cost of hiring an attorney. Even if the cost is not an issue, the incentives are all wrong. If the police seized your car worth $5,000 or took $500 cash from your home, would you be willing to pay an attorney more than your assets are worth to get them back? If you haven't been charged with a crime, are you willing to risk the possibility that fighting the forfeiture might prompt the government to file criminal, criminal charges against you? The greatest failure of the Reform Act, however, has nothing to do with one's due process rights. Once property has been seized in a drug investigation, despite all of the new procedural rules and formal protections, the law does not address the single most serious problem associated with drug war, forfeiture laws, the profit motive in drug law enforcement. Under the new law, drug busts motivated by the desire to seize cash, cars, homes, and other property are still perfectly legal. Law enforcement agencies are still allowed through revenue sharing agreements with the federal government to keep seized assets for their own use. Clearly, so long as law enforcement is free to seize assets allegedly associated with illegal drug activity without ever charging anyone with a crime, local police departments, as well as state and federal law enforcement agencies, will continue to have a direct pecuniary interest in the profitability and longevity of the drug war. The basic structure of the system remains intact. None of this is to suggest that the financial rewards offered for police participation in the drug war are the only reason that law enforcement decided to embrace the war with zeal. Undoubtedly, the political and cultural context of the drug war, particularly in the early years, encouraged the roundup. When politicians declare a drug war, the police, our domestic warriors, undoubtedly feel some pressure to wage it. But it is doubtful that the drug war would have been launched with such intensity on the ground but for the bribes offered for law enforcement's cooperation. Today, the bribes may no longer be necessary. Now that the SWAT teams, the multi-agency drug task forces, and the drug enforcement agenda have become a regular part of federal, state, and local law enforcement. It appears the drug war is here to stay. Funding for the Burns-sponsored drug task, task forces had begun to, div to dwindle during President Bush's tenure, but Barack Obama, as a presidential candidate, promised to revive the Burn Grant program, claiming that it is 
critical to creating the anti-drug task forces our communities need. Obama honored his word following the election, drastically increasing funding for the Byrne Grant Program, despite its abysmal track record. The Economic Recovery Act of 2009 included more than $2 billion in new burn funding and an additional $600 million to increase state and local law enforcement across the country. Relatively little organized opposition to the drug war currently exists, and any dramatic effort to scale back the war may be publicly condemned as soft on crime. The war has become institutionalized. It is no longer a special program or politicized project. It is simply the way things are done. Legal misrepresentation. So far, we have seen that the legal rules governing the drug war ensure that extraordinary numbers of people will be swept into the criminal justice system, arrested on drug charges, often for very minor offenses. But what happens after arrest? How does the design of the system help to ensure the creation of a massive undercast? Once arrested, one's chance of ever being truly free of the system of control are slim, often to the vanishing point. Defendants are typically denied meaningful legal representation, pressured by the threat of a lengthy sentence into a plea bargain and then placed under formal control. In prison or jail, on probation or parole, most Americans probably have no idea how common it is for people to be convicted without ever having the benefit of legal representation or how many people plead guilty to crimes they did not commit because of fear of mandatory sentences. Tens of thousands of poor people go to jail every year without ever talking to a lawyer. And those who do meet with a lawyer for a drug offense often spend only a few minutes discussing their case and options before making a decision that will profoundly affect the rest of their lives. As one public defender explained to the Los Angeles Times, they are herded like cattle into the courtroom lockup up to three or four in the morning. Then they have to make decisions that affect the rest of their lives. You can imagine how stressful it is. More than 40 years ago, in Gideon versus Wainwright, the Supreme Court ruled that poor people accused of serious crimes were entitled to counsel. Yet thousands of people are processed through Americans' courts, America's courts, annually, either with no lawyer at all or with a lawyer who does not have the time, resources, or in some cases, the inclination to provide effective representation. In Gideon, the Supreme Court left it to state and local governments to decide how legal services should be funded. However, in the midst of a drug war, when politicians compete with each other to prove how tough they can be on crime and criminals, funding public defender offices and paying private attorneys to represent those accused of crimes has been a low priority. Approximately 80% of criminal defendants are indigent and thus unable to hire a lawyer. 80%. Yet, our nation's public defender system is woefully inadequate. 
the most viable sign of the failed system is the astonishingly large caseloads public defenders routinely carry, making it impossible for them to provide meaningful representation to their clients. Sometimes defenders have well over 100 clients at a time. Many of these clients are facing decades behind bars or life imprisonment. Too often, the quality of court-appointed counsel is poor because the miserable working conditions and low pay discourage good attorneys from participating in the system. And some states deny representation to impoverished defendants on the theory that somehow they should be able to pay for a lawyer, even though they are scarcely able to pay for food or rent. In Virginia, for example, fees paid to court-appointed attorneys for representing someone charged with a felony that carries a sentence of less than 20 years are capped at $428. And in Wisconsin, more than 11,000 poor people go to court without representation every year because anyone who earns more than $3,000 per year is considered able to afford a lawyer. In Lake Charles, Louisiana, the Public Defender Office has only two investigators for the 2,500 new felony cases and 4,000 new misdemeanor cases assigned to the office each year. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund and the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta sued the city of Gulfport, Mississippi, alleging that the city operated a modern-day debtor's prison by jailing poor people who are unable to pay their fines and denying them the right to lawyers. In 2004, the American Bar Association released a report on the status of indigent defense, concluding that all too often defendants plead guilty, even if they are innocent, without really understanding their legal rights or what is occurring. Sometimes the proceedings reflect little or no recognition that the accused is mentally ill or does not adequately understand English. The fundamental right to a lawyer that Americans assume applies to everyone accused of criminal conduct effectively effectively does not exist in practice for countless people across the United States. Even when people are charged with extremely serious crimes such as murder, they may find themselves languishing in jail for years without meeting with an attorney, much less getting a trial. One extreme example is the experience of James Thomas, an impoverished day laborer in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who was charged with murder in 1996 and waited eight and a half years for his case to go to trial. It never did. His mother finally succeeded in getting his case dismissed after scraping together $500 to hire an attorney who demonstrated to the court that in the time Thomas spent waiting for his case to go to trial, his alibi witness had died of kidney disease. Another Louisiana man, Johnny Lee Ball, was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole after meeting with a public defender for just 11 minutes before trial. If indicted, murderers have a hard time getting meaningful representation. What are the odds that small-time drug dealers find themselves represented by a zealous advocate? As David Carroll, the research director for the National Legal Aid and Defender Association explained to USA Today, there is a real disconnect in this country between what people perceive is the state of indigent defense and what it is.
I attribute that to shows like Law and Order where the defendant says, I want a lawyer, and all of a sudden, legal aid appears to the cell. That's what people think. Children caught up in the system are the most vulnerable and yet are the least likely to be represented represented by counsel. In 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the Galt that children under the age of 18 have the right to legal assistance with any criminal charges filed against them. In practice, however, children routinely waive their right to counsel in juvenile proceedings. In some cases, such as Ohio, as many as 90% of children charged with criminal wrongdoing are not represented by a lawyer. As one public defender explained, the kids come in with their parents who want to get get this dealt with as quickly as possible, and they say, you did it, admit it. If people were informed about what could be done, they might actually ask for help. Bad deal. Almost no one ever goes to trial. Nearly all criminal cases are resolved through plea bargaining. A guilty plea by the defendant in exchange for some form of leniency by the prosecutor. Though it is not widely known, the prosecutor is the most powerful law enforcement official in the criminal justice system. One might think that judges are the most powerful, or even the police, but in reality, the prosecutor holds the cards. It is the prosecutor far more than any other criminal justice official who holds the keys to the jailhouse door. After the police arrest someone, the prosecutor is in charge. Few rules constrain the exercise of his or her discretion. The prosecutor is free to dismiss a case for any reason or no reason at all. The prosecutor is also free to file more charges against a defendant than can realistically be proven in court so long as probable cause arguably exists, a practice known as overcharging. The practice of encouraging defendants to plead guilty to crimes rather than affording them the benefit of a full trial has always carried its risks and downsides. Never before in our history, though, have such an extraordinary number of people felt compelled to plead guilty, even if they are innocent, simply because the punishment for the minor, nonviolent, nonviolent offense with which they have been charged is so unbelievably severe. When prosecutors offer only three years in prison, when the penalties defendants could receive if they took their case to trial would be five, ten, or twenty years, or life imprisonment, only extremely courageous or foolish defendants turn the offer down. The pressure to plead guilty to crimes has increased exponentially since the advent of the war on drugs. In 1986, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which established extremely long mandatory minimum prison terms for low-level drug dealing and possession of crack cocaine. The typical mandatory sentence for a first-time drug offense in federal court is 5 or 10 years. By contrast, in other developed countries around the world, a first-time drug offense would merit no more than six months in jail if jail time is imposed at all. State legislators were eager to jump on the get tough and get tough bandwagon, passing harsh drug laws, as well as three strikes laws, mandatory mandating a life sentence for those convicted of any third offense. Those mandatory 
minimum statutory schemes have transferred an enormous amount of power from judges to prosecutors. Now, simply by charging someone with an offense carrying a mandatory sentence of 10 to 15 years or life, prosecutors are able to force people to plead guilty rather than risk a decade or more in prison. Prosecutors admit that they routinely charge people with crimes for which they technically have probable cause, but which they seriously doubt they could even win in court. They load up defendants with charges that carry extremely harsh sentences in order to force them to plead guilty to lesser offenses and here's the kicker to obtain testimony for a related case harsh sentencing laws encourage people to snitch the number of snitches in drug cases has soared in recent years partly because the government has tempted people to cooperate with law enforcement by offering cash putting them on payroll and promising cuts of seized drug assets, but also because ratting out co-defendants, friends, family, or acquaintances is often the only way to avoid a lengthy, mandatory minimum sentence. In fact, under the federal sentencing guidelines, providing substantial assistance is often the only way defendants can hope to obtain a sentence below the mandatory minimum. The assistance provided by snitches is notoriously notoriously unreliable. As studies have documented countless informants who have fabricated stories about drug-related and other criminal activity in exchange for money or leniency in their pending criminal cases. While such conduct is deplorable, it is not difficult to understand. Who among us would not be tempted to lie if it was the only way to avoid a 40-year sentence for a minor drug crime. The pressure to plea bargain thereby, the pressure to plea bargain and thereby convict yourself in exchange for some kind of leniency is not an accidental byproduct of the mandatory mandatory sentencing regime. The U.S. Sentencing Commission itself has noted that the value of a mandatory minimum sentence lies not in its imposition, but in its value as a bargaining chip to be given away in return for the resource-saving plea from the defendant to a more leniently sanctioned charge. Describing severe mandatory sentences as a bargaining chip is a major understatement given its potential for exacting guilty pleas from people who are innocent of any crime. It is impossible to know for certain how many innocent drug defendants convict themselves every year by accepting a plea bargain out of fear of mandatory sentences or how many are convicted due to lying informants and paid witnesses, but reliable estimates of the number of innocent people currently in prison tend to range from 2% to 5%. While those numbers may sound small and probably are underestimated, they translate into thousands of innocent people who are locked up, some of whom will die in prison. In fact, if only 1% of America's prisoners are actually innocent of the crimes for which they have been convicted, that would mean tens of thousands of innocent people are currently languishing behind bars in the United States. The real point here, however, is not that innocent people are locked up. That has been true since penitentiaries first opened in America. The critical point is that thousands of people are swept 
into the criminal justice system every year pursuant to the drug war without much regard for their guilt or innocence. The police are allowed by the courts to conduct fishing expeditions for drugs on streets and freeways based on nothing more than a hunch. Homes may be searched for drugs based on a tip from an unreliable, confidential informant who is trading the information for money or to escape prison time. And once swept inside the system, people are often denied attorneys or meaningful representation and pressured into plea bargains by the threat of unbelievably harsh sentences. Sentences for minor drug crimes that are higher than many countries impose on convicted murderers. This is the way the Roundup works. And it works this way in virtually every major city in the United States. Time served. Once convicted of felony drug charges, one's chances of being released from the system in short order are slim at best. The elimination of judicial discretion through mandatory sentencing drug laws has forced judges to impose sentences for drug crimes that are often longer than those violent crimes receive. When judges have discretion, they may consider a defendant's background and impose a lighter penalty. If the defendant's personal circumstances, extreme poverty or experience of abuse, for example, warrant it, this flexibility, which is important in all criminal cases, is especially important in drug cases studies have indicated that many drug defendants are using or selling to support an addiction. Referring a defendant to treatment rather than sending him or her to prison may well be the most prudent choice, saving government resources and and potentially saving the defendant from a lifetime of addiction. Likewise, imposing a short prison sentence for or none at all may increase the chances that the defendant will experience successful re-entry. A lengthy prison term may increase the odds that re-entry will be extremely difficult, leading to relapse and re-imprisonment. Mandatory drug sentencing laws strip judges of their traditional role of considering all relevant circumstances in an effort to do justice in the individual case. Nevertheless, harsh mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenders have been consistently upheld in the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1982, the Supreme Court upheld 40 years of imprisonment for possession and an attempt to sell nine ounces of marijuana. Several years later, in Harmelin v. Michigan, the court upheld a sentence of life imprisonment for a defendant with no prior convictions who attempted to sell 672 grams, approximately 23 ounces, of crack cocaine. The court found the sentences imposed in those cases reasonably proportionate to the offenses committed and not cruel and unusual in violation of the Eighth Amendment. This ruling was remarkable given that prior to the Drug Reform Act of 1986, the longest sentence Congress had ever imposed for possession of any drug in any amount was one year. A life sentence for a first-time drug offense is unheard of in the rest of the developed in the rest of the developed world. Even for high-end drug crimes, most countries impose sentences that are measured in months 
rather than years. For example, a conviction for selling a kilogram of heroin yields a mandatory 10-year sentence in U.S. federal court, compared with six months prison in England. Remarkably, in the United States, a life sentence is deemed perfectly appropriate for a first-time drug offender. Depending on the drug offender, I'm sure. The most famous Supreme Court decision upholding mandatory minimum sentences is Lockyer versus Andrade. In that case, the court rejected constitutional challenges to sentences of 25 years without parole for a man who stole three golf clubs from a pro shop and 50 years without parole for another man for stealing children's videotapes from a Kmart store. These sentences were imposed pursuant to California's controversial three strikes law which mandates a sentence of 25 years to life for recidivists convicted of a third felony, no matter how minor. Writing for the court's majority, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor acknowledged that the sentences were severe but concluded that they are not grossly disproportionate to the offense and therefore do not violate violate the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishments. In dissent, Justice David H. Salter retorted, If Andre's sentence for stealing videotapes is not grossly disproportionate, the principle has no meaning. Similarly, counsel for one of the defendants, University of Southern California law professor Erwin Kamarinsky noted that the court's reasoning makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to challenge any recidivist sentencing law. If these sentences aren't cruel and unusual punishment, what would be? Mandatory sentencing laws are frequently justified as necessary to keep violent criminals off the streets, yet these penalties are imposed most often against drug offenders and those who are guilty of nonviolent crimes. In fact, under three strikes regimes, regimes such as the one in California, a repeat offender could be someone who had a single prior case decades ago. First and second strikes are counted by individual charges rather than individual cases. So a single case can result in first, second, and even third strikes. The prosecutor has the discretion to change related but individual charges as separate strikes. For example, imagine a young man arrested at age 17 for a schoolyard fight, tried and convicted as an adult. A few years later, he is struggling to survive, having been branded a felon and unable to find work. He passes two bad checks, desperate for cash. That's three strikes, one for the prior assault and one for each bad check. His children will be raised without a father. Or imagine a woman struggling with drug addiction, unable to obtain treatment, and desperate for money so she can feed her habit. She burglarizes a home and steals a television that she hopes to sell, but she is caught and arrested a few blocks away. She gets no jail time, but also gets no drug treatment, and now has a felony record. When she is caught with cocaine and heroin in her pocket a few months later, she has three strikes. One strike for each drug and one for her prior felony. She will die in prison. These examples may sound extreme, but real life can be worse. Sentences for each charge can run consecutively, so a defendant can easily face a sentence of 50 
75 or 100 years to life arising from a single case. It is not uncommon for people to receive prison sentences of more than 50 years for minor crimes. In fact, 50 years to life was the actual sentence given to Leandro Andrade for stealing videotapes, a sentence upheld by the Supreme Court. The clear majority of those subject to harsh mandatory minimum sentences in the federal system are drug offenders. Most are low-level, minor drug dealers, not drug kingpins. The stories are legion. Marcus Boyd was arrested after selling 3.9 grams of crack cocaine to a confidential informant working with a regional drug task force. At the time of his arrest, Marcus was 24 years old and had been addicted to drugs for six years, beginning shortly after his mother's death and escalating throughout his early 20s. He met the informant through a close family friend, someone he trusted. At sentencing, the judge based the drug quantity calculation on testimony from the informant and other witnesses, and who both claimed they bought crack from Marcus on other occasions. As a result, Marcus was held accountable for 37.4 grams, the equivalent of 1.3 ounces. Based on the statements made by the informant and the other witnesses, the other one witness, he was sentenced to more than 14 years in prison. His two children were six and seven years old at the time of his sentencing. They will be adults when he is released. Weldon Angelos is another casualty of the drug war. He will spend the rest of his life in prison for three marijuana sales. Angelos, a 24-year-old record producer, possessed a weapon, which he did not use or threatened to use at the time of the sales. Under federal sentencing guidelines, however, the sentencing judge was obligated to impose a 55-year mandatory minimum sentence. Upon doing so, the judge noted his reluctance to send the young man away for life for three marijuana sales. He said from the bench, The court believes that to sentence Mr. Angelos to prison for the rest of his life is unjust, cruel, and even irrational. Some federal judges, including conservative judges, have quit in protest of federal drug laws and sentencing guidelines. Face to face with those whose lives hang in the balance, they are far closer to the human tragedy occasioned by the drug war than the legislators who write the laws from afar. Judge Lawrence Irving, a Reagan appointee, noted upon his retirement, If I remain on the bench, I have no choice but to follow the law. I just can't. I'm good in good conscience, continue to do this. Other judges, such as Judge Jack Weinstein, publicly refused to take any more drug cases, describing a sense of depression about much of the cruelty I have been a party to in connection with the war on drugs. Another Reagan appointee, Judge Stanley Marshall, told a reporter, I've always been considered a fairly harsh sentencer but it's killing me that I'm sending so many low-level offenders away for all this time. He made the statement after imposing a five-year sentence on a mother in Washington, D.C., who was convicted of possession of crack found by police in a locked box that her son had hidden in her attic. In California, reporters describe a similar event. U.S. District Judge William W. Schwartzer, a Republican appointee, is not known as a light sentencer, Thus, it was that everyone in his San Francisco courtroom watched in stunned silence as Schwarzer, known for his stoic demeanor, 
choked with tears as he anguished over sentencing Richard Anderson, a first offender, Oakland, longshoreman, to 10 years in prison without parole for what appeared to be a minor mistake in judgment in having given a ride to a drug dealer for meeting with an undercover agent. Even Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy has, content, has condemned the harsh mandatory minimum sentences imposed on drug offenders. He told attorneys gathered for the American Bar Association's 2003 annual conference, our prison resources are misspent, our punishments too severe, our sentences too loaded. He then added, I can accept neither the necessity nor the wisdom of federal mandatory minimum sentences. In all too many cases, mandatory minimum sentences are unjust. The prison label. Most people imagine that the explosion in the U.S. prison population during the past 25 years reflects changes in crime rates. Few would guess that our prison population leaped from approximately 350,000 to 2.3 million in such a short period of time due to changes in laws and policies, not changes in crime rates. Yet it has been changes in our laws, particularly the dramatic increases in the length of prison sentences that have been responsible for the growth of our prison system, not increases in crime. One study suggests that the entire increase in the prison population from 1980 to 2001 can be explained by sentencing policy changes. Because harsh sentencing is a major cause of the prison prison explosion, one might reasonably assume that substantially reducing the length of prison sentences would effectively dismantle this new system, this new system of control. That view, however, is mistaken. This system depends on the prison label, not prison time. Once a person is labeled a felon, he or she is ushered into a parallel universe in which discrimination, stigma, and exclusion are perfectly legal, and privileges of citizenship such as voting and jury service are off limits. It does not matter whether you have actually spent time in prison. Your second-class citizenship begins the moment you are branded a felon. Most people branded felons, in fact, are not sentenced to prison. As of 2008, there were approximately 2.3 million people in prison and jails, and a staggering 5.1 million people under community correctional supervision, i.e. on probation or parole. Merely reducing prison terms does not have a major impact on the majority of people in the system. It is the badge of inferiority, the felony record, that relegates people for their entire lives to second-class status. As described in Chapter 4, for drug felons, there is little hope of escape barred from public housing by law, discriminated against by private landlords, ineligible for food stamps, forced to check the box indicating a felony conviction on employment applications for nearly every job, and denied licenses for a wide range of professions, people whose only crime is drug addiction or possession of a small amount of drugs for recreational use, find themselves locked out of the mainstream society and economy permanently. No wonder then that 
most people labeled felons find their way back into prison. According to a Bureau of Justice Statistics study, according to a Bureau of Justice Statistics study, about 30% of released prisoners in its sample were rearrested within 6 months of release. Within 3 years, nearly 68% were rearrested at least once for a new offense. Only a small minority are rearrested for violent crimes. The vast majority are rearrested for property offenses, drug offenses, and, of- and offenses under the public order. For those released on probation or parole, the risks are especially high. They are subject to regular surveillance and monitoring by the police and may be stopped and searched with or without consent for any reason or no reason at all. As a result, they are far more likely to be arrested again than those whose behavior is not subject to constant scrutiny by law enforcement. Probationers and parolees are at increased risk of arrest because their lives are governed by additional rules that do not apply to everyone else. Myriad restrictions on their travel and behavior such as prohibition on associating with other felons as well as various requirements of probation and parole such as paying fines and meeting with probation officers create opportunities for arrest. Violation of these special rules can land someone right back in prison. In fact, that is what happens a good deal of the time. The extraordinary increase in prison admissions due to parole and probation violations is due almost entirely to the war on drugs. With respect to parole, in 1980, only 1% of all prison admissions were parole violators. 20 years later, more than one-third, 35% of prison admissions resulted from parole violations. To put the matter more starkly, About as many people were returned to prison for parole violations in 2000 as were admitted to prison in 1980 for all reasons. Of all parole violators returned to prison in 2000, only one-third were returned for a new conviction. Two-thirds were returned for a technical violation such as missing appointments with a parole officer, failing to maintain employment, or failing a drug test. In this system of control, Failing to cope well with one's exile status is treated like a crime. If you fail after being released from prison with a criminal record, your personal badge of inferiority to remain drug-free, or if you fail to get a job against all the odds, or if you get depressed and miss an appointment with your parole officer, or if you cannot afford the bus fare to take you there, you can be sent right back to prison, where society apparently thinks millions of Americans belong. This disturbing phenomenon of people cycling in and out of prison, trapped by their second-class status, has been described by Loic Quant as a closed circuit of perpetual marginality. Hundreds of thousands of people are released from prison every year, only to find themselves locked out of the mainstream society and economy. Most ultimately return to prison, sometimes for the rest of their lives. Others are released again, only to find themselves in precisely the circumstances they occupied before, unable to cope with the stigma of the prison label and their permanent pariah status, reducing the amount of time people spend behind bars by eliminating harsh mandatory minimums will alleviate some of the unnecessary suffering caused by this system. 
but it will not disturb the closed circuit. Those labeled felons will continue to cycle in and out of prison, subject to perpetual surveillance by the police and unable to integrate into the mainstream society and economy. Unless the number of people who are labeled felons is dramatically reduced, and unless the laws and policies that keep ex-offenders marginalized from the mainstream society and economy are eliminated, the system will continue to create and maintain an enormous undercaste.